Welcome to Ripstop on the Record, a podcast where fabric enthusiasts and DIY gurus discuss all things make your own gear, with the occasional poor attempt at comedy to keep it interesting. I'm Kyle Baker, the owner and founder of Ripstop by the Roll, and we're excited to have you listening. Hey everyone, it's Jameson here. In this episode, we're talking with Greg Hardy, owner and founder of Rockgeist. If you're a bike person, then I don't really need to say much more. If you're not a bike person, then you really shouldn't skip this conversation. Greg has an intuitive and refreshing take on MYOG. We talk about weldable fabrics, sustainability issues in DIY, Asheville, North Carolina, and one uncomfortable night that Greg spent under a rock in the Alps. As for this week's free fabric, check Instagram or sign up for our email list to see what new materials you can work with. I want to apologize ahead of time for a few technical issues you'll notice later on in the episode. We had to use a secondary recording source, which means my audio is a bit hard to hear in the closing section. We'll make sure to get things back to normal on the next episode. This is Ripstop on the record. Hey, Greg, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. No doubt. We're happy you're here. So first things first, uh, for anybody that doesn't know where you already are, uh, where are you located? Where's Greg located? And then also what brings you to the episode today with Rock Ice? Yeah, so Rock Ice is in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, and right now I'm at my house on east on the east side of town. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's where we are. And uh, before Asheville, we were in Durham, North Carolina, which is a familiar place for you guys. Very, you bet. That's hilarious. I didn't know that you guys were previously in Durham, actually. I did not know that. Yeah. And so when we say you guys, that was just back when it was just me. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, that's where I went to grad school. Uh, and that, okay. that's where I first started sewing and uh, making gear. And back then, uh, I must have been like 2010, I was just selling it on eBay. So that, yeah, that's, that's the start in, in Durham, North Carolina. Amazing. So kind of as we joked about in the email leading up to this, Asheville is really known for, well, many great things, but really two things. I feel like it's it's trails and it's mountain access and then beer. And then like many episodes that we like to do, we like to get a good craft beer. So what are you drinking today? Totally. Yeah. Uh, I am drinking the Highland uh, AVL IPA. Uh, this is a brewery that's right down the road from my house. Um, great outdoor space. Um, pretty, pretty big brewery. So yeah, if you're in town, definitely check it out. Absolutely. Oh, I'd love to. I've got the Gizmo Brewworks Twinning Juicy IPA. So a local Raleigh brewery myself. Uh, Carter and I often let the ball drop on getting non-gas station beer. So today I actually went to, I level up the Harris Teeter. So <laughs> at least something. So some, some small intel, Carter specifically asked, he wants to know what your favorite brewery in Asheville is. I don't remember what the numbers are, but there's something like, is it over like 50 breweries in the general Asheville area? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming, um, it, <laughs> but uh, I mean, there's so many great ones, but I'm going to give you just one answer. Um, and this is the brewery that's right down the road from our workshop is uh, Zillicoa. And okay. that is uh, right on the French Broad River and it's just north of downtown. Okay. Yeah, but it, gotcha. And see that? What's that one called? Say it one more time. Zillicoa with a Z. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And uh, it's, it's uh, I believe that's the Indian name of the, of the French Broad River in that part of, of Asheville uh, and, and like the Woodfin area. Awesome. Well, we'll meet up there one day. That's a, yeah. that's a guarantee. And <laughs> it's, it's right next to the workshop. So it, it's great when people come to visit. Um, usually they pop in, say hi, grab some gear, and then head down the road and um, yeah, check out that brewery. So amazing. I love it. So the other side of Asheville trails, mountain access, rock ice for anybody that doesn't know or hasn't caught on yet, uh, is a bike bag company in short, you know, maybe that's the oversimplified version, but as you know, we'll tackle rock ice in a few minutes, but what are some of your favorite trails or tell us briefly about some of your favorite places to ride out there? Yeah. So a lot of the stuff I like is on the, like the east side of Asheville. So uh, like, uh, like the, the, the Wilson Wilderness, um, also like Morganton area. Like, cause when I lived in Durham, I kept driving west. And this is like the first part of, you know, the real proper mountains that you come to. So yeah. uh, like for a day ride, I highly recommend Weed Patch um, out by Lake Lure. And um, that's, it's a 
it's a big ride though. So it's literally the whole day, you know, plan for that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Katsuma is a great one, just right off uh, 40 coming in, okay. in the town. Uh, that's a that's a fun loop to do. But yeah, as then um, out in uh, uh, Old Fort, there's the the G5 Trail Collective. They're building a ton of trail right now. Um, so like the Heartbreak Ridge area, and that's that's going to be a nice loop you can finally get to uh, without killing yourself. And uh, it's it's just a lot going on in the Old Fort area. So I would recommend that, especially if you're coming from Durham or Raleigh, anywhere uh, east in the state. Awesome, man. There's so much to do out there. I've been out to Asheville really only very, very few times and I've, I've never ridden out there. I've hiked, I've trail run and stuff, but I've never actually ridden. So there's, there's a lot to be sought after for sure. Definitely. Yeah. It's a great place to be. No doubt. So back to Rockgeist. In short, you make bike bags, but to kind of give people a little bit more inspiration than just bike bags, or maybe they're not bike people, what would you say is Rockgeist's passion? Or if you could tie up the loose ends in terms of what you all do, how would you define that? Yeah, so th- that would be with our custom gear. Um, that's really kind of how we got our foot in the door uh, as part of like the manufacturing space. Um, and that's what we like have grown with, the custom work that we do. So this is like custom frame bags, uh, you know, uh, universal gear, but with custom features and custom colors. Um, and so we do this made to order type of business where we're not just pulling inventory and shipping it out the door. You know, like we, we know the name of the person who places the order um, and, you know, it, it takes a couple of weeks to make it. Um, that's generally how we got our start um, and, our, and our foot in the door and have grown with that process since. So you started with custom bags. Were the people that you were making these for, were they, were they doing things like continental divide long trails or was it just everyday use kind of deal most most are bike packing um you know obviously we have a big part like today a big part of our customer base are people that are just commuting they're day riding um, or you know just kind of around town day rides type stuff but um the core customer that like that we build this stuff for is for bike packers um that is our passion uh, you know it's it's the bike packing community and through gear, that is the best way that I figured out how to contribute to that community. So one of the questions I, I noted here is what does Rock Ice do better than anyone else? And maybe you just answered that. Custom gear, you can find it, but it's hard to come by. And a lot of people don't want to do that. <laughs> There's a lot of variabilities there. Would you say that's probably something that you guys really specialize in probably better than most other people? Yes. And, um, it, 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 honestly, it's very challenging. Um, and that's why there's really, yeah, there's a lot of small companies that can do custom work. Um, but doing it at any type of scale is hard. Um, you know, no matter what your size is like custom, custom gear is tough to scale. And so you have a ton, a ton of companies that are super small, one or two people, you know, or, or maybe a few more. Um, but you don't have this kind of big production outfit of like a 20, 30 person company with custom. How do you take custom gear? Cause a lot of these times you never see the bike in person, right? You don't really get to measure it out by hand. These are sent in all online from your website, right? Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. And that's honestly, that's, that's when our business started taking off is when we were, we were pushing the use of these photo based templates. Uh, our process, what we call is photo fit. Um, and that really allowed us to scale on a different level. Um, previously, before this, the industry was using cardboard cutouts of bike, and so it was it was a gold standard for a customer to just trace the triangle of their bike and mail that piece of cardboard to the maker, uh, which sounds crazy, but that's really and and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's it's a process that is is very accurate, and um, but there were so many headaches associated with that. And our market is is not just in the U.S. And so it's like, I'm not going to be waiting on these on these templates from Germany or Australia, right? So everything is just photos of your bike. Um, we have a very um, prescribed and deliberate way that we ask you to take this photo, and then we take that uh, and then we scale it, um, correct for photo distortion, and then now we have your physical template. Uh, we can see all the things on your bike that we need to work around: cables, uh, cranks. Uh, water bottles, uh, you know, obviously every bike is different. And so 
even the same model bike with different customers are set up very, can be set up differently. That is one of the cooler things about bikes. Like everybody else in the world, I got into cycling last fall, you know, just the way the tide rolls sometimes. And I love how you can see the exact same bike twice and it's never the same, right? The same frame, the same crankset, whatever it is. And with bags, I mean, that's another ridiculous variability for you guys or variable to have to deal with same frame, but different cables, different crankset, whatever it is, everything changes so much. Right. And, and the, the thing that really makes it tough is like now, like we do full bolt on bags. So, so these, are, these are bags that don't use any straps. They just bolt using the water bottle bosses on your frame. Today, so many manufacturers are having bolts on the underside of your top tube. And so we can get all three tubes um, with our, with our photo fit. Um, but we build a bag completely different than if you were to use Velcro. Um, and so it's just, it's just kind of a, I don't know, <laughs> it's a big umbrella to kind of tackle. Um, and we've been doing it so long that we're kind of comfortable pushing our capabilities. But at the same time, we still are trying to like keep our, uh, our, our production kind of, uh, I guess, efficient and streamlined. And so we're not killing ourselves making all this custom work. That's, you know, we're not starting from scratch. And, and ideally that's, that's the system. Like you want to just put parts together and, um, you know, assemble the whole bag. Yeah. So how long has Rock Ice been around, Greg? Yeah, officially, um, ah, man, I would say 2014. Okay. Okay. So the, the reason I was asking is I feel like a lot of makers, everybody listening to this episode, uh, we are always thinking of new ways to try to incorporate with packs or bike bags or quilts or whatever it is. But you all, I feel like Rock Ice adds a certain level of construction that I haven't seen in a lot of other makers. For instance, your the welded seams like on the, the Nigel bag and some of your porcelain rocket. And then like what you were talking about with the bolt-on bags, there's a whole different level of you're moving beyond fabrics. I mean, they're still fabric oriented for sure, but then moving into like, uh, there's a lot more rigidity to the way you're able to work on that then. How, how did you find that bridging that gap? Like for instance, I'm thinking about making a, uh, a bar, a handlebar bag from the front that's self-support. I don't want to rack or anything. I just want it to be able to bolt on. So I'm trying to think of how to slide in like a metal bracket in there but we're touching on like new new areas of making that I'm not even familiar with. I can sew mostly everything I can think of, but then adding in, you know, whether it's like a foldable cutting board or metal brackets or something like that is bridging a totally different gap. How did Rock Ice bridge that from sewing, making, binding, things like that to then like metals and plastics and things like that? Yeah, uh, no, that, that is a great uh, distinction between like the, the DIY efforts and then like, a, you know, some of the, more polished bags from these bigger companies. And, and um, for us, it really started with the fact that we first started, and particularly myself, I first started designing gear for bike packing with a full suspension bike on sailing track. And so there's no room for like an okay bag that kind of works. And so right from the beginning, it was the hardest type of bag design to deal with, right? Like, now, like, like, you know, so I, I ride a Santa Cruz uh, 5010. It's a kind of like a mid, mid-range, short travel, full suspension bike. And, you know, trail like the Colorado Trail, Arizona Trail Race, those are the types of trail that I was riding and designing for. Um, and so if it works for that, it's going to be great for everything else. I could see that. Because even on something like the Nigel bag, um, if anyone doesn't know what that is, please go look it up. It's a... I'm not sure the liter size, but I'm going to go with like maybe a four to five liter front handlebar, a fairly compact bag. So I think it's something kind of like a burrito size, but different shape. Even that bag, I rode that today for two hours on Greenway Trail, you know, Noose River, east, uh, east side of Raleigh. And out of all the bar bags I've used, I've made a couple, I've used a couple pre-made ones, things like that. It was by far one of the more stable ones. So even in a, a handlebar option, there was no movement. Everything was incredibly secure which kind of gets back to your point about if it's made for the trail or single track, then pretty much anything else you can use it for is going to be incredibly solid. Right. And a, a quick caveat on that bag, that bag was designed by uh, Scott and his team with Force and Rocket, which we can get into later. Um, but that, that wasn't designed by us. We have uh, recently absorbed Force and Rocket. And that was one of the 
the more popular products that, that they make um, and design them. So let's let's make later right now porcelain rocket. What is uh, I'm not that familiar with porcelain rocket. I knew about rock ice, and it was one thing that Carter, our, our senior product manager here, told me. He was like, "Make sure you ask him about porcelain rocket. I got to know more about that. I love the I love the bags, and I love rock ice, and I want to know how they came together." Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that was a, a you know mid pandemic uh, uh, acquisition, and, and that was like really challenging to navigate. But uh, essentially, Scott, the owner of Porcelain Rocket, um, has been doing it for I think almost eleven years at that point, um, and he was just ready for a new chapter in his life, looking to move on, but wanted his his products to carry on. Uh, and so he approached us, and uh, like maybe a year and a half ago, a little bit more now. About starting a process of hey, do you want to purchase um, these products and start making them? And so, I've Porcelain Rocket has been like one of the original like cottage gear uh, companies for bike packing, and uh, I've always used them. I never really talked to them before that moment uh, where they approached me, but I've always used uh, kind of how they designed and the the process that they thought like you know high quality gear. Uh, super stable, innovative. Um, that mentality and the scale of what they were making was like, like my goal. And I was always kind of referencing Scott and his team uh, through my evolution of Rock Guys. So when he asked if he wanted to be part of the future of that gear, um, it was a no-brainer. Was like, absolutely. So that's what we've been working on uh, most recently is getting that full line um, uh, through like production and getting up on the website um, and yeah, so it's we're about halfway there. We got about half the products up, but still a long way to go to get the rest. Yeah, I love that. I love how Scott sought you out for that. I don't, I don't know Scott well, but it's, it's so cool that you. Uh, there seems to be like an intrinsic connection there. You were referring them, you were learning from them, and then they eventually sought you out after all that. <laughs> right, and like a lot of the stuff that we've done, like uh, the Space Link is a great example. Um, it's a machine aluminum part that uh, in short stabilizes all your uh, cockpit um, bags, like your, your top two bag and your, and your feed bags. Um, but it was a totally different way of thinking. Um, and it was kind of like moving towards that element of stable is better. And like that's bolt on strong connections, aluminum brackets. Um, but I think that really piqued Scott's uh, interest in us and at least got our company on the radar for him. Um, and so that, that's the kind of influence that he's had without really knowing it. So besides the stability aspect, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I think the the seams on uh, on porcelain rocket bags are also kind of unique. Welded seams, not something that's really that possible or that popular. <laughs> can you, how are you able to talk about that or, or how much are you able to tell us? Because it's something that I can say to some extent it rips up by the role we're really interested in. Last year we released our, our 3.9 ounce Venom fabric that we're trying to figure out how to make uh, more weldable. And there is a there is a capability for that or a bondable feature, but it's really hard. Those the, making that seam last and sturdy and work is really difficult. How do you do it or how much are you able to tell us? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, as you expect, I really can't share all the intimate. Oh. But generally, you're right. I mean, welding is uh, is totally different from sewing. Like, the construction kind of similar, but um, it's really not. Um, you know, taking something that's like flat, like a 2D thing, and transforming it to a 3D welded piece of gear, you don't get the same freedom as if you're sewing. And so, uh, and that is what um, Scott has really and his team in Porcelain Rocket have perfected over like the last five years. And so all of his gear is, is welded. Um, you know, there's sewing steps that complement it, but like the integrity of the bag is completely welded. So it's hundred percent waterproof. Um, and for people listening, you're thinking, okay, well, yeah, I have sewn gear that's waterproof. Um, but there's a distinction between waterproof fabric and, and a bag that's waterproof, right? And so like X-Pack is a great example. It's a waterproof fabric. But as soon as you start sewing that bag together, it is no longer waterproof. Um, for obvious reasons of needle holes. Um, of course, now there's seam sealing. You can you know, put a, a, a physical barrier over those needle holes, um, but I'm sure you guys know it's, and everyone else, it's a very challenging, uh, slow, messy process that uh, honestly isn't all that effective. Yeah, yeah, that's, 
that's kind of the so one of one of the questions I marked here for us, and this is more of just an open-ended kind of thought more than any either of us can probably answer too much, but I wonder how that seems like the next thing in DIY, I guess. They were one of the biggest barriers that could be broken is at home welding, just because, you know, for with the example of Dyneema composite fabric, that PSA is one of the best out there in a lot of ways because it's, you know, a point three, whatever, whatever it is, DCF to the layer, like it's constructed by them. It works so well because they're made for each other. But with for so many other fabrics, there's not that same level of made for each other-ness that's but what you could even remotely achieve with welding. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'll say that the art, the fact we use is proprietary and custom made for the equipment that's being used on. And so there's, it's not like you can take, you know, any fabric and any welder and put them together, uh, at least that I'm aware of. Right. And so, and especially on a small scale, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not really familiar with the large, uh, you know, uh, overseas welding that happens for a lot of the big brands that sell water from here. But in terms of like the smaller scale, uh, it's a very challenging and you're, you're, the margin of error is very minimal. Um, and yeah. And so like when you think about welding and like, why is it so hard? I mean, you know, it's, it, it seems simple. You have energy, time and pressure, those three variables and that's it. Right. So, but it's it, honestly, it's, it's a lot to uh, a lot of time that it would take to develop a system that works consistently and also that one you can like uh, for us that we can scale to at least to the cottage here yeah yeah there's there's no seam ripping in welding you can't just kind of undo it and take it back <laughs> right right <laughs> so we mentioned it dcf rock dice uses dcf specifically for uh one of your saddle bags if i'm remembering specifically yeah there yep uh, what entices you all? You might have answered it with the waterproofing characteristics and whatnot, but what do you like about DCF when kind of how do you see that fitting into other bike bags? Yeah, well, first thing I say with, with, with the Dyneema composite fabrics and, and, and all the Dyneema, we really appreciate Ripstop on the road because, like, honestly, that is the only source that we have gotten like from the beginning. Uh, and uh, it's very hard fabric to get. So thank you for all that you do for, with, with the Dyneema work. Uh, but yes, yeah, so we didn't know. We didn't, we didn't pay to say that. That was purely organic. Thank you for saying that, Greg. We appreciate it. And Lance will really, will really appreciate hearing that. No, and, and especially getting a full rolls of it. I mean, it's, it's honestly, and you know, it shows up the next day, but granted, I'm only a couple hours away, but um, yeah. So, so we, we use that fabric and um, which kind of also like you talk about what sets Rockcast apart is that, well, we work with, with Dyneema, uh, especially the lightweight, the, the hybrid fabrics, um, probably more so than a lot of the bikepacking companies. Um, and we, we do saddlebags, uh, but most of the work we do is, is the custom frame bags. And so we will build custom work out of that, uh, that fabric. Uh, uh, we don't do the smaller top two bags or anything because it's so hard to work with. The smaller bags, it's just a nightmare to try to get that done and like not kill yourself. So, but the, the frame bags, we've got good systems. Uh, we use totally different machines for the, for the manual work, just like given how thin it is, I mean, different needles, different threads. Um, and all that, but we are sewing those bags and binding those bags. Uh, but yeah, I mean, honestly, like it's, I love working with it. It's, there's nothing that says cottage gear more than, than like high performance Dyneema. And so I think it will always be a staple of our lineup. As much as you're able to talk about it, again, we're not trying to give away any secrets here. Uh, DCF is often the gold standard for a lot of people's fabrics and materials that they want to use. Not all of your bags are made with DCF as much as you can, obviously. What do you look for in other materials or what other materials do you use? You know, for people looking to make bike bags at home or looking at rock dice and considering a new bike bag, is it, is it, you know, durability and weight, waterproofness? Is it, you know, do you want a strong abrasion resistance or do they all matters depending on the user? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, for us, so I can really only speak to like the, the bike packing use of this stuff. And, you know, the, we, the, we selected Dyneema that can like has stitch retention. I think that is the biggest uh, factor for us because um, you know our stuff gets used hard you know sometimes if you know if you're pulling it um, with through velcro attaching to your frame and then you have like a water bladder in there uh, the bag is constrained to the shape of the frame and then the contents are inside just kind of bouncing around which is a little bit different than a backpack let's say right uh, and so like there's no just like you can't just cinch it down roll and strap it tight 
So that's one of the elements we like is, is the hybrid that uh, it's that polyester 50 denier face uh, made into the Dyneema backing, um, which still you so that 50D is enough to hold stitches. Um, and it's not really delicate at all. I mean, I have my frame bag that has like thousands of single track miles on it. And it's that the 2.92 hybrid. Uh, I absolutely love it. And it's, it's, it's weathered. It has this patina, but it's, there's no holes in it. Right. And even if there was, I just tape it over. Like it's, it's a great, it's a great fabric for real. As someone that works a lot with fabrics, materials, components, et cetera, what's missing in the fabric and components market, do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, today, I think there's a lot of great fabrics to use, um, kind of in that X-Pack world, um, especially, and then I like the Dyneema world. Now, like you guys have, have really pushed the, the woven um, Dyneema, which is incredibly strong, um, different than the laminate, which we just talked about. Um, I really like that for kind of like, you know, the future of like what a, the most durable type of fabric would be, was for sure the woven Dyneema. Um, and to me, I think that's kind of what we would like to do. And like now it's just a matter of cost and like, okay, how much is the company willing to pay? And then how much that fabric cost to make, et cetera. Um, I'm hoping in the future that comes down is more favorable that we can provide that without, you know, charging an enormous amount for a frame bag. Um, but just kind of generally speaking across all fabric, I would love to see more of the work that does like the, the, the fluorocarbon free DWRs. Um, and so like those per uh, hydrofluorocarbons um, are very toxic. Uh, there's been kind of, you know, this over the last, like, I don't know, 10, 20 years, it's, it's obviously everyone's radar. And then it's like, there's always legislation to kind of combat that and it's getting slowly better, but it's still being used in a lot of fabrics. Uh, I, so right now, uh, Challenge Sailcloth is on my radar because they're doing some work where they're not using those DWRs. Um, they're using alternative DWRs or none at all. Um, so the nice thing about Dyneema actually is that it's, it has such properties where doesn't need a, a DWR. It's just naturally repellent for oils and, and, and water, and there's no coating needed. Um, but for nylons like X-Pac, um, that uh, to repel water, it does need a DWR. For bite packing, I uh, I don't think it's DWRs are important at all. Um, make it waterproof, sure, but if the fabric wets out because there's no DWR, it doesn't really matter for us. Um, you know, it's, these bags are get thrown in the mud all, all day. It's like, and even if the fabric wets out, it's like, okay, adding a, a, a small amount of weight. This It's not on our backs, it's on our bikes. And so even if it wets out, I think it's totally fine. Um, but the non-toxic, the, the recycled polyester, um, recycled nylon, all that, I really am looking forward to see where that goes and hope it, um, accept, hope we get where we're going faster with that stuff. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's something that isn't talked about a lot in, in DIY because it's not fun to talk about, but it's still a really interesting point that, uh, you know, I thought about when I first got into the DIY world, it's like really, you know, this is awesome. I'm making things instead of buying things. And there's a, an element of that that's really, really true. And, and also I think that there's a huge, um, I test so much more, you know, I would have bought and maybe, or I would have bought one item where now I might make a prototype and then make one and then finally make another <laughs> that's actually kind of everything that I want it to be. So it's interesting you bring that up about the kind of the chemical makeup of some of these can be really harmful, but also the waste is also a, a kind of a weird thing to grapple with sometimes because you do use so much more fabric if you're going to make something than if you're just going to buy one. Good right, right. And then, you know, the same context, like I know like this, the manufacturers are, are, are buying hundreds and thousands of, of rolls of this stuff. Um, even us as a, as a small cottage gear, you know, we go through so much fabric. Um, and, you know, honestly, like I would love to spend my money supporting fabric that is, is the best for the environment. Of so, yeah, that's kind of where we are. Like we spend a lot of money on fabric and, you know, there's, you know, Dimension Polyant is doing work in this space, uh, Challenge Sale Law. Um, and so there are options. It's just a matter of, when the bigger manufacturers buy into it, because then it will all trickle down to the DIY, to the small cottage gears, because we can't fund our, our minimum orders. We won't reach what we need to, so obviously. So, as, yeah, and that's a complicated, uh, you know, <laughs> very integrated 
problem that that needs solving and, and work with. Yeah. And it's, I think it's also a great testament to buy from small cottage vendors, obviously ones that, uh, that you trust and you work with, but getting one thing, getting the right bag from a company that you know and you trust can, is really important. I think buying from those right people and also getting the best version. Because oftentimes it's getting rid of that. Like one thing I struggle with is throwing away scrap fabric, which is like little bits, like I'll snip off the corner, you know, things like that. It's like, I, I feel bad throwing all this away, but there's no way, there's no way else to use that. And so specifically getting, getting the best version of that thing often from somebody that makes it specifically from you can be so, can be so strong and be, be so powerful. Right. And I, I totally agree. I think the cottage, the cottage makers in general, the cottage industry is for the most part, very efficient on, on what they use because their, their scale makes that easier for them. Uh, another question that we wanted to ask you about is, is machines. I mean, you have to make a ton of different gear. What sort of sewing machines do you use at Rock Guys? Do you have? Binders. This is kind of the the nerdy stuff that only the DIYers would really care to ask. Yeah. No. Great. Uh, yeah. For the sewing machines, we we do like like a lot of like our uh, assembly construction. So like when we take our two D panels and make it into a three D bag, um, we do all that work with uh, Walking Foot uh, Juki fifteen forty one, which is a very popular kind of Walking Foot. It's it's a big needle. It can handle a lot of fabric. Um, but it can also do great with plastic. And so like what you were saying earlier with you're thinking about how do you integrate plastic into gear? Well, if you're going to be moving that direction, you're going to need a big machine that's just not going to skip a beat uh, when you're sewing through that plastic. And so, um, yeah, so we, we sew through, uh, right? Like today we were sewing through uh, plastic that was one eighth of an inch. So it's, it's relatively pretty thick, uh, very stiff. Um, and so those machines are great. We, I think we have seven of those and like, that's our main, which like everybody's workstation has that machine. Um, and then for like the lighter weight, like the Sil nylon, um, the Cuban fiber, that stuff we use on uh, a Juki 8700 and it's, uh, just a single needle machine, straight stitch. Um, it's not a walking foot. Um, and so, uh, that we found does the best with like, just like two layers uh, also accepts a ton of like binding accessories because it's such a popular machine. And so it's really easy to find accessories for those. Uh, and then when we want a walking foot, I, I pulled out my Sailorite, like kind of like the portable one, like the, the red, the red orange one. Uh, that's a great walking foot because you could put like a really tiny needle on that. Uh, and it has great ability for like, like kind of that fine needle work that you need sometimes. Um, and they also obviously have a, the zigzag version. Um, if you need that, and we use the zigzag for elastic and we have an old singer, uh, I think it's called 220U. It's just, it's made in West Germany. This old thing, like, it was my first sewing machine I bought from Craigslist for like a hundred bucks. Uh, and that has a zigzag pattern. And that's what we use, we use that really just for that now. Um, and then the other machine I think uh, is, is funny is we have one machine that is um, I'm sorry, actually, it's, it's on the singer as well. It has all of different color threads on it. And so when we're doing our top stitching on like a red bag, we can change the red thread. And then if we have the blue, you know, because we do a lot of multicolor frame bags. And so it's really important to change thread colors for that top stitch. Uh, and that's just like, it's just nice to have a machine that has like, you know, 15 cones, you know, like antlers behind it. Yeah. <laughs> That's also, it's, uh, that's, this is something that I've noticed actually with a lot of our makers and companies that I've talked to. I feel like you have made it as a DIYer when you have a zigzag machine. When you're like, oh, that's the, that's the only one that does a zigzag. Everything else just like runs a million miles an hour straight. That's the one that can do that. You're like, okay, now you're making good stuff. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a lot of these machines, like the zigzag one, I mean, they're really cheap on Craigslist. Like, you know, and, and yeah, the straight stitch machines but are expensive. Like, you know, I think the, that Juki 1541 is about 2000 but in the relative world of machines that like if you're doing it for a living, it's really not that expensive. Um, as a DIYer, yeah, that's a big commitment uh, it, it, to jump to something like that. But I would just leverage the, the you know, like the old, um, uh, what is the Kenmore machines on Craigslist. You can see a lot of those. Um, they're just like kind of like that industrial machine that's like for the home, you know, that has its own table and, um, but you know, if you have a big motor, um, and a big needle, you can, you can do a lot of that. 
Cool. So another thing that I noticed, Greg, when I was checking out your website and everything is that Rockheist has a huge focus on, let's call it education, I guess, from having your rental program with the bags, also routes that you do, and then even um, kind of a totally different way, the fabrics that you show on your website. I mean, you have tons of space dedicated to showing the users what fabrics you use, why you use them, why they're important. You tend to have a huge emphasis on educating a user base. Well, I guess one, it may seem like an obvious answer to some, but why do you do that? And the kind of the follow-up question to that is, how do you see that play out with your customers and your users? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that started really to like separate us from other cottage gear and custom frame bag makers. Um, and particularly, like, that's it, just what my brain thinks. Like, I was trained as a scientist. I'm an engineer as well, and it's just kind of like what I'm interested in. And so I was like, well, I'll just tell everybody more than they probably want to know and, and see if, <laughs> and if you, you don't have to read it, right? It's not, we're not yeah. like, so, but I, I, I was very involved in like the early days with like the online forums of like, like uh, backpackinglight.com, you know, and like, and you can see the kind of similarity between the discussions that happen on that forum yeah. and then our website. Um, and so that's kind of translated from like my hiking days of just like being super analytical. Um, and at the time no one was doing that in the bikepacking space. And so I was like, all right, well, we'll just be that company, I guess, like the the technical company who is going the extra mile to educate their customers. I mean, and our gear is expensive. Uh, and so we want to tell people one, like the performance behind their fabrics, um, and, and, and two is like, they have a better connection to what they're buying. If they understand why that fabric is special or why these zippers are best meet their needs. Uh, and, and ultimately we want to meet everybody's needs. And so like a Cuban fiber frame bag might not be the best payment for everybody. Um, some people might want, you know, the, the X 50 multi-cam or like a really bomber kind of like yeah. and and not so expensive high end you know and I don't want to say delicate but you have to use that bag in a certain way that you can't on a more kind of yeah. like ballistic nylon type way <laughs> uh, and so and that's going to help customers choose the right thing like when they have so many choices you have to tell people why why choose this over this and that's what we do or are trying to do yeah and I think you you hit the nail on the head with, with setting you apart from other people. This, like you said, typically outdoor gear is expensive, and you know, and sometimes it, your life is reliant on that gear. Um, these things are so tricky. Fabric specifically, when you start looking at fabric makeup and the face and the and the backing and the coating and all these things, like you can get out of people's brains really quickly. <laughs> so to give them a little bit of insight to say, hey, all this stuff is really tricky. Let me simplify it for you or let me just tell you what you need to know so you can feel confident making a purchase go such a long way totally and like you're right like it's it's crazy to think but like understanding the fact that sewn seams are not waterproof like if you if that's holding if a sewn dry bag is holding your down sleeping bag and it gets wet and you're on top of a mountain pass that's a big problem Um, and that's just because you didn't right and that's because the customer just didn't realize that you know, mm-hmm. oh, it's waterproof fabric, but so th- those are the kind of things that um, can really make a big difference when you're out on the trail. I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I've I've looked at your uh, I've looked at your website before to learn a little bit more about fabrics, the way you say things, the graphics and things. I find it really useful. So we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. But if anyone else is interested in Rockies bags, but also if you want to learn more about the fabric, they do an excellent job of of kind of based on education on some of their fabrics. We we'll also definitely check that out. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you started Rockgeist. Were you a DIYer growing up? You said you're an engineer by trade. Why did you start sewing? It's typically, it's one of my favorite questions to ask because especially in kind of a 2021 way, sewing's not really the hottest thing out there. <laughs> but for a lot of people that I talk to, it's a, it's a huge part of our lives. Why did you pick up a sewing machine? Why did you start making? Yeah, so I was I was living abroad, uh, studying uh, at school in Germany, and my my lab mate, well, I just caught her on a uh, one day she was getting ready to make like pants for her son, and like I was like, I was like why don't you just you know go to, go to Target and or, or wherever and get them, and it's like but that was like a, a 
her and, and a lot of Germans, that was like, they have sewing machines in their house still. That's like, mm-hmm. and they do a lot of just basic clothing for their families. And, and so, uh, I was telling about this hike I was going to do after I was done with my school and, but I didn't have, I was in grad school and you don't get paid well. And, yeah. and so I was like, well, I don't have like $400 to buy a tent at REI. And, and so she, she helped me make just like a simple tarp. Um, on her like her home machine and um, and that's kind of how it opened at least opened my eyes to that and then when I got back in the states I just bought that that singer I was telling you about that industrial machine that um, is yeah I kind of just started making hiking stuff um, and then my friend in Arizona uh, is a mountain biker and and I've never really mountain biked before and so but he he was trying to convince me to to ride the uh, Arizona or do the Arizona trail race, which is like the Mexican border um, yeah. up past Tucson. It ends just outside of Phoenix for the, for the 300 version. The full one goes all the way to Utah. I was like, sure. I, I was in grad school still. I had plenty of time. And yeah. uh, <laughs> and then I started making gear for that. And that's, that's how it, how it started. It's funny. So one of my questions was going to ask you if you'd made things other than bike bags or if that was your introduction. Um, so it's cool that you filled that in. But yeah, there's uh, I always it, so I started with some of the rules right around a year ago now, and I always think about like, man, if I told 16 year old me, 15 year old me that one day I would be sewing a lot and working with a fabric company, and I think and I thought it was the coolest thing, like 100, right. I wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> right. Right. Man, I'm telling you, it's it's been cool to see you guys grow. Like, cause like, you know, I don't know when when. So, what year did Kyle kind of get off the ground with this? So, it Rift Subliminal started as Appalachian Hammock initially. It wasn't the fabric company. They were trying to make hammocks. It was Kyle and Kyle's brother. Uh-huh. And I want to say that was like 2011, maybe. Yeah, it was a while ago. Um, but they were having so much trouble sourcing the fabric and getting good fabrics and not feeling like they were laying in a trash bag and not feeling like their clothes were getting scratched off. They yeah. couldn't find good enough fabrics. So that's when he kind of saw that avenue of like, hey, a lot of people don't have the fabrics they want or don't have good fabrics or don't have the fabrics that they need. There's got to be something there. So I'm pretty sure if Stop of the Roll was around 2014 to 2015, if I remember correctly. And then they moved into the warehouse where we currently are and we're about to move out of in 2016, 2017 area. Yeah. Um, yeah. Later this year, we'll move into our own full, full on warehouse. We'll have a maker center. We'll have kind of a showroom area and um, it'll hopefully be big time, but it's in construction right now. <laughs> yeah, I, that, I, I've been love following the, the journey from afar um, because that, that's kind of where I was getting my start around those same years. Yeah. And so I was, I was always just kind of like looking to see other businesses grow and develop. And I was like, okay, well, they're, they're doing great. I think there's some space here for us to, to grow into as well. Um, yeah. And it's cool how like, you know, the synergy between, you know, these small cottage brands and of course yeah. your business. So that's been really fun to, to see and watch. It is. It's fun because I think the growth is often so mutual, right? When when you grow, we grow, and vice versa. Yeah, <laughs> kind of they're, right. they're very. They work together. They have to exist together. We very much need each other. You know, we do not make final products. I, you can see some of my packs behind me. I would wear them, but I wouldn't sell them to anybody. Yeah, <laughs> we don't make the final thing. Some guys that we do have are, are fantastic makers. Um, but we, we very much need each other. We want to be able to supply the education for making and sewing and working and also then send people to people like Rock Guys and other places. So it's a beautiful relationship and that's what makes it so fun, honestly. I couldn't agree more, man. Yeah, that, that's incredible. What's one thing, Greg, that you wish more people knew about Rock Guys? Yeah, I, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I think about like, not really in the sense of gear, but maybe just about like our company, like, that we are a small company. And so, you know, we have, right now we have eight employees and um, I just kind of wish more people would know that like, we don't have a customer service person, you know, like <laughs> like there's there's nobody who's answering emails full time and like we're all doing our best just to kind of manage the chaos of running a small business. And I don't think, I mean, people are great and some people definitely do know, but especially with the pandemic, we've got this huge surge of like first time bike packers. 
and I don't think they understood the scale of, of what we are. Uh, and, you know, when email gets answered once a week, you know, and like stuff like that. Uh, but that's like a, a tricky thing to convey on your website. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, we, we try to do that. Um, but I think that's the sense of like community that makes bikepacking so great is that there's, there's all these businesses are so small and they're mm-hmm. all made up of people that are just really passionate about their sport they're passionate about like helping their customers and designing gear and and we're not the kind of company that you know just has nameless faces that just gear gets shipped out and they rise it's like so i think that that kind of discussion with customers is is always a tricky one to have um and i think it's definitely getting better but it's still a challenging thing for us to convey yeah it's interesting um Carter is our, our senior product manager. Isaac's our product coordinator. We hang out a lot. We make videos a lot. Where we were talking the other day about how, let's see the best way to say it, um, the quality from smaller companies is growing more than before. We think in a lot of ways that, like Rockus is a very small company. Like you said, you have eight employees, but in at one point in time, maybe different years and decades ago, that small scale would have equated to a, a lesser quality where now you can guarantee us still a very high quality from a very small company. And that is really cool to see that that intentionality, that personalization is seeming to match or catch up a lot more quickly. You're right. Yeah. And, and I, I totally agree with that because now like, you know, a made in USA product um, can can be um, much more like the quality levels is, is, is the durability, everything is yeah. is a really special product compared to something that's made overseas um, but it doesn't have to be that way because you can still have a waiting to say product that, that sucks and and yeah. so that's the reality and as a customer how do you know what which one of those you're getting right and so yeah. it, it is tough for customers and that's why you know i think communication on the website ultimately that's what it comes down to yeah. is 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 the you know how much can you convince someone that yes, this is a quality product and it's better and that's something that's mass produced in Asia. That's a, that's a really challenging thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's the best way for people to follow rock dice? And we've mentioned it so many times. I, I need you to say your website so that people can go there right now. We'll link everything in the show notes that Greg mentions here, but where should people follow you and where should people stay in tune with what you do? Yeah, I think the best way is uh, our homepage, rockgeist.com, and uh, uh, Geist is G-E-I-S-T. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a, a, a newsletter. Uh, we call it the Rock Gazette, uh, where we kind of give our, our – we try to do monthly updates of all things happening. Uh, and that's where we ping um, all our, our, our people, our, our customers, and, and, um, and the bikepacking community of what's going on. Things are changing so fast, especially in the last you know 18 months. And so it's been like a pretty um, busy kind of like, you know, we, we just moved our workshop and now we just moved it back into, it's like things are going crazy right now. And so it's kind of fun to see just like, even if you don't like bikepacking, just the evolution of, yeah. you know, a small you know company. And like, if you're interested in entrepreneurship, that kind of stuff. So yeah, that, that's the best way to find us, rockguys.com. And uh, I meant to ask this way earlier, but it just came up now. What does rock dice mean? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, uh, I guess it, it it loosely translates to spirit of the rock, uh, and that was uh, Geist is like ghost or spirit in German, um, and then rock is obviously rock. But uh, it it my first bikepacking experience was a, a total disaster, um, and I ended up sleeping under this like little like rock alcove with like no tent or anything. Just kind of got stuck on a mountain. And so that was kind of like the moment I was like, like there's something here to this sport. Like this, like <laughs> like that was the moment. Um, and uh, and I was I was studying in Germany, so that that's the connection with the the rock geist and the spirit of the rock. So I've uh, we have to go here now because you brought it up. <laughs> I've I've heard that story from the Bikes to Death podcast. Like, yeah, my homework, yeah okay. to that episode with, with you and um, and Patrick, but. Give us the cliff notes on your first bike packing story. Yeah, I, I was just trying to get from A to B, and it was uh, I was in Switzerland and I had to go up and over the, the Alps and totally underestimate how hard that would be. Uh, you know, as I've never ridden a bike with any type of gear before, and I was only doing it because I thought it'd be faster than walking. But honestly, I don't even think it was. Uh, <laughs> 
But so I, I got stranded. I was like, it was really dark. I got stranded. I didn't know what way the trail went because there was snow on the summit and it was dark out and my batteries and my Garmin were dead. And, and so I just had to wait until daylight to find the trail. Um, and I was coming from a, a work conference. And so I just slept in my like suit that I had in my backpack. It was, it was fortunately like, you know, like a wool suit. I presented like a couple days before, and, like you know, I didn't mail it to. My, I should have just mailed it to where I was going, obviously. But I had like a a U lock, a steel U lock uh, for my bike. Uh, I had my laptop with me, and yeah, I was just hanging out, drinking snow, and uh, trying to stay warm <laughs> for the night. Amazing! So many people would have that experience and never go outdoors again. <laughs> And I love how that spurred you on. That's amazing. It can only go better. It can only go up from there. Yeah, that's very true. And you were in an incredibly beautiful part of the world. So right. I had to have a small part. Right. Yeah. No, <laughs> not at night. Not at night. But the next day it did. Right. Very few people have sympathy in that story. They're like, all right, well, you were still, you know, riding your bike in Switzerland. So I don't really. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, um, we have this thing that we jokingly and, and uh, kind of, fondly referred to as the the rip stop by the world field trip where we get to talk to a lot of really cool people throughout the podcast we've talked to adventure sponsors in california we've talked to dimension poly and next pack and all these people and and i this is probably the most likely one but i we, we've got to come out and have a beer with you sometime and see where you are ride some trails with you a couple of us here at rip stop are are bike people relatively new bike people you yeah. know in the last year or so but we love to ride we'd love to have a a beer as with you know like anybody else so we'll have to come hang out with you sometime and as always with the new shop coming great we'd love to have you in Durham to check out the makerspace and everything like that oh my god i would i would love to see that and, and definitely if you're in the Asheville area please come to the workshop and that goes it goes for anyone listening as well you know we have a retail space set up in the workshop and we love when people are, you know, poke their head and even just to say hi so please d- definitely do that Greg, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Um, thanks for telling us all about Rock Geist and your fond stories from the Alps. All right, man. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon, Greg. Thank you. Bye. Bye.